Well, they have a doomsday clock, they say out there, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. But that doomsday clock, I think, has become a little bit of a joke recently. But we know that in the book of Micah, Micah has been prophesying that the end of Israel and soon Judah is coming closer and closer as well as he's prophesying. And so we are applying those things in the last few weeks to our own lives and to our own nation and and where we're at. And we see that we are getting closer and closer to the end days. No bunch of professors and uh, business people out there deciding where the hands on the clock are are not prophetic, but they are showing us what we already know. And as we, Lord willing, complete chapter 7 and complete the book of Micah, we're going to make these local prophecies and our future prophecies apply all together and wrap them up to see how the Lord is speaking to us and where we live. But I think we can all say in unison that things are not getting better culturally, that they're getting worse, that we're deteriorating. Let's open with a word of prayer. We'll read the first four verses, and then we'll see where Micah is showing us they are in their culture. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would guide and direct us, have us to have the proper application historically with this prophecy, Lord, and then also teach us for where we're at in our lives and what is yet future for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at what the Holy Spirit's leading Micah to say here in verses 1 through 4. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. And they may success, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now share in their perplexity. The uh, thorn that are speaking of is the same thing that used here for briar in verse 4. Sticky, going to hurt. And then we see that it says their perplexity. That just means confusion, um, not being able to understand. And so we're seeing the decay of society here with Micah. He's talking about the northern kingdom Israel. He's talking about the southern kingdom Judah, Judah. And if you remember over these last seven chapters, he's been telling us over and over that the rulers the leaders, the priests, the prophets, many of them who have become false prophets, they were more successful financially than ever before. They would look at each other and say, man, how successful we all are, and yet we're seeing this constant, constant decay, and we're seeing it at their level. And I, we can make the personal application today, can't we? I mean, if you think about the best in society today, secularly, we think about our leaders, the actors, the politicians, How are they compared to, I don't know, 10 years ago, 25 years ago? How about 100 years ago? I I used one example earlier. I'll I'll use it again, this this service. Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States, was shot, and he finished his speech 
He finished his speech. Yeah, that, that's right. And then he went to the hospital afterwards. Like that's, that's what the tough guys, the leaders used to be like, regardless of his politics. And you know, you historians, you know, you might want to argue with me a little bit. And then we look at today's character and where we're at today, and we can see what Micah had going on in his day. Hey, even the very best of us is like a thorn. We're just attacking each other. We're eating each other alive, laying in wait for blood. I mean, look in verse 2. Every man hunts his brother with a net, just going after each other. And all this activity, all this stuff, all of this culture, if we go back even farther here in verse 1, he's saying it's like harvesting a harvest with no fruit, with no gain, no return. And you might remember in the previous chapter, Micah said the same thing spiritually with the nation of Israel. In Micah 6.15, he said, You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil, and make sweet wine, but not drink wine. I don't think we really kind of understand what that is, to harvest and get nothing back. I mean, imagine working all week and there's no paycheck. I gave The story that I think about in, from my life is, Every summer, I had spent the time with my grandparents' ranch, and there was a summer where we had uh, cattle in the field, and, you know, they got to feed them through the winter, and so my grandfather had this piece of property that had all this hay on it, and they had cut all the hay, and they could keep it all, but my grandfather did not believe in renting a baler. Why? When you have strapping young grandkids. So we're out there in the middle of the summer, and it is hot. I mean, the hottest I'd ever experienced in my life until I moved to South Carolina. <laughs> and we're out there, and we are literally raking hay into rows all day in the heat. After that, they'd bring the pickup, and we would pitchfork the hay into the back of the truck. And all day we would work, and then we would take it back to the ranch, and you put it into a stall, and we would pack the stall with hay so the cows would have something to eat when their food was running out. And you worked all day long, and you got nothing but the joy and satisfaction of hard labor. Yeah, as a 14-year-old, that sucks. That's a technical term. <laughs> of course, I look back on it fondly, but you can see the analogy here, the feeling of working all day and pressing yourself and getting nothing back. And that's what was happening without walking with the Lord, doing all these things. And yet, remember, the, clicking, the, the clock is ticking. That doomsday clock is ticking. Micah's telling them. It's not a future prophecy for him like, oh, you know, thousands of years later. He is going to witness in his lifetime Israel taken over by the Assyrians. He is going to see the dev devastation, the bloodshed, the burning. He's going to see it, and he's warning them. Hey, all this work you're doing right now is for nothing because it's aside from the Lord. Just like we're seeing in the United States today. You know, we're seeing decay and we're seeing morality. You know, I use Teddy as an example. And we're seeing that our heroes are no longer the heroes that we used to be. People aren't keeping their word. People aren't, they're compromising over and over again. But I'm going to let you let on a secret. I, I kind of built the trap here for you. Because you may be agreeing with me that you know, society is really getting messed up and, it, and it's really starting to deteriorate on a faster and faster rate. But what many Christians do, what many churches do, is we say they 
are messing up. They are decaying. They are getting corrupted. And we look at them versus us, and we think that, oh, we're the salt of the earth. Well, we are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the earth. We're the ones that, are, that really have this together. But what did Micah say? How did he start this prophecy? Woe is me. Not woe is them. Not woe is they. Not you guys are really messing up. You need to shape up like I am. He says, woe is me. Woe is our nation. Woe is our country. Woe is the sinner. Woe is humanity. We together, collectively. Because as Christians, sometimes we fall into a trap. And we forget. The Bible clearly tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know that the Titanic is kind of in the news recently. And as Christians, sometimes... We act like we're in the lifeboats watching the Titanic go down, and some of them are on the deck, and they're playing music to be calm. Some of them are panicking. Some of them are jumping off. Some have life preservers. Some don't. And we're out there in the life preservers, the lifeboats, and we're looking at them, and we're saying, oh, man, they're really stupid. They should have been smart like us and gone on these lifeboats. Man, the world's really messing up. Look at them go. When it's us, we don't deserve anything. We are the broken ones. We are a part of the problem. We are sinners. All of us have fallen short. We are not better, smarter people, and the Lord gains nothing by having us on His team. And sometimes we act like it. Yes, we can all agree that things are getting worse and worse. And Micah now, in verses 5 through 7, he's going to go in even more detail. Because he says in verse 5, Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth. For her who lies in your bosom, for son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation." My God will hear me. So it's deteriorated all the way to the family. If we want to look at the application here in Israel with Micah's day, he had seen this deterioration before his very eyes. You know, those that had walked with the Lord, they had come out of Egypt, they went into desert, they had the victorious uh, invasion of the promised land, they started a nation of Israel, King David, all those things had come to pass. And then, they, But they had slowly deteriorated worse and worse and worse. Horrible kings, kings that had led them into paganism and idolatry, departing from the Lord. And now he's seeing it at the very end before the invasion of Israel. But Micah's been showing us these things, and he says it's getting so bad it goes all the way into the family where the family's betraying each other, the deterioration. And so let's jump from that time period, it's around 700 A.D., and let's go to 21st century to today, and we see the very same thing, the decay and the deterioration of society. Keeping your word isn't as important. Honor is a word that's never even used anymore. Greed, taking advantage. Well, what does the Bible say? Did the Bible maybe predict that these things would happen? Did did the Bible tell us that in the days that we're in it would be like this? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, But know this, in the last days, that's today, perilous times will come. 
for men will be lovers of themselves. Let's put check marks by them as we go off. Boasters, yeah. Proud, mm-hmm. Guilty. Blasphemer, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Now, I'm going to stop, but you notice it's a comma. It keeps on going. And we see that all these things are happening today, just as they happened in Israel. Now, I want to point out one thing about my analogy with the Titanic that somebody brought up to me after the first service. And that is the, life preser- the lifeboats are not full. There's plenty of lifeboats. Now, historically, we know that's not right. We know that they didn't have enough for all the people, right? But if you're talking about the gospel message, the judgment of God is coming. The ship is going down. But we have empty spots. And we keep pointing at them, they, when really we need to go back, help. We need to share the gospel. We need to be the light, but we need to realize that it is not us. It is our Lord, and that's what Micah does. In the midst of this dark text where he's simply declaring how things are and what's going to happen. Remember, seven chapters he's prophesied God's judgment is coming. He's raised up the Assyrians. In the future, Judah, your time will be next. The Babylonians will come in. And remember, this is literal for him. This isn't some allegory. He's going to watch this invasion. And in the midst of that, what does he say in verse 7? Therefore, I will look to the Lord. Now, I don't know if it was Chuck Smith or John Corson. Maybe it was either one of them. But they said, every time you have a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? In the midst of these things, because of these things, therefore, and remember, Micah takes it upon himself, woe is me, for I am like, in verse 1. And then he says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. Paul would say, in me dwells no good thing, except for, of course, the Lord himself. He is the lifeboats. He is the Savior. And we look to Him in the midst of perilous and difficult times, and we don't, as it were, build our bunkers under our homes and hope that we could just survive it out. That ain't going to happen. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But we are to, as He says, wait for the God of my salvation. What does it say in verse 7? My God will hear me. In the midst of great difficulty and great trial, We are to be broken before the Lord. We're to understand who we are. We are to declare as Micah declared, woe is me, knowing that many things are not getting, we're not gathering anything back in this world. Many of these issues that we have are even affecting your own family, and maybe you've even felt that personally. Therefore, in the midst of those things, We don't look with judgment on other people. We look to ourselves and we look to the Lord and we say, I will wait on you. And we have that glorious promise that He will hear us. You know, there may be somebody here that you may feel like you're under the judgment of God. You may feel like you can't approach Him. You may feel like you're the one that's been selfish and hasn't been been right with Him. Maybe you're the one that's been taking advantage of others. You can declare what Micah declared. You can look to the Lord. He will hear you. 
Too many people think they have to earn their way to have access to Him. We come back to Him and approach Him in our fallen state the same way we did when we were a non-believer. By faith alone, we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. He will hear us. Well, now we're going to change subjects, but we're going to see how they apply together, and we're going to connect them. So let's read verses 8 through 13. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Verse 11. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from the sea to the sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it, and for their fruit of their deeds. Now, when in verse 8, when I said we have a subject change here, when he says I, he's being poetic. I, he is now speaking as Jerusalem in the first person. So he says, I do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. He is prophesying about what is going to take place a hundred years in the future from this time. From Micah's day, a hundred years in the future, after Israel has already been taken into captivity in the north, Judah is going to be invaded by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians will take is, uh, Jerusalem. Excuse me, They'll take Jerusalem three times. And by the end of the third invasion, nothing will be left of Jerusalem. The people will be taken. The buildings will be destroyed. It will completely collapse. And so it says here in verse 8, when I fall, I will arise. See, Micah is prophesying that after a 70-year captivity, which he's spoken about before, God is going to raise up Israel and bring them back into the promised land. And so speaking in the first person, he's saying, Jerusalem, hey, enemies, don't rejoice too, too loud when you take over because God's going to bring me back. And he says here, when I sit in darkness, verse 8, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my case. So the Lord in prophecy and scripture, had told the nation of Israel that they would be taken captive for 70 years. Every year of Jubilee, every Sabbath year that they had not taken and not been obedient to, they would be going to pay for in Babylonian captivity, which would become Persia. But then he was going to restore them. The foreign nations were going to, to tear them apart, destroy them, but it was all for God's purpose, and the enemies would say to Israel at the end of verse 10, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. And so Micah's penning these things. You know, how easy it would be to be depressed if you're Micah. You know the northern kingdom is going to be taken by the Assyrians in your lifetime. I don't think he lived to see the invasion of the Babylonians in Judah. It's a long time. But he knows that Judah's going to be taken captive. I mean, this is terrifying. 
I mean, this is his neighbors, his people, his nation, his tribe. And we can apply it with him. But then we can also apply what he has said to us earlier. Remember, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The context of Micah is this. We can't fix anything. We are not righteous. We're not good. It's not us versus them. Us, humanity, has fallen short of the glory of God. But the Lord has made a way of salvation. The Lord has made a way of redemption. And the Lord is the one that will deliver us. You remember all the way back in Micah chapter 1, verse 3? In the very beginning of this book, he wrote, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. There's two prophecies that are taking place here. Number one is the Lord's first coming, that He would leave the throne room of God, He would descend and come to humanity in the form of Jesus and show us the way of salvation and make way for salvation where He has victory, over sin, death, and the devil. And we have access to that by faith. But also in His second coming, in what Micah calls here in that day, we're going to talk about that, He's going to come and make all things right. He's going to have a seven-year judgment on this planet. And it is terrifying. And at the fulfillment of that seven-year judgment, He's going to come back and He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. He'll tread down the high places on the earth. What Micah is saying is that the Lord is going to do it. The Lord is going to deliver us. Paul would tell us, none is good, no, not one. Yeah, that includes us. So, yeah, I I tricked you earlier. I had you casting judgment on culture and saying it was them, but really it's us. But if you see in verse 11 and verse 12, he talks about in the day, in that day, in that day. What is that day? He's talking about the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord. Now, if you go to a church where you're not in the minor prophets, you're not going to hear about that very often. You're going to be like, what what are you talking about? It's spoken of a few times in the New Testament, but over 19 references in the Old Testament to this day of the Lord. Now, this day of the Lord is a period of time, speaking from the rapture of the church when the Lord brings His bride home, a seven-year tribulation, and then the judgment of God when He returns on the Mount of Olives and sets all things right. That is the day of the Lord. It's also known as the 70th week of Daniel. 70th week of Daniel, we'll talk about that at a time. I'll be here for three hours. But I want us to understand there is a literal rapture. Now, if you don't know what the rapture is, it's in the Greek it's written as harpazo. You'll find text in First and Second Thessalonians for it. The church is not appointed unto wrath, the bride of, God, of Christ. And so the Lord is going to supernaturally take us up in the air in the twinkling of an eye. We will be translated. We'll go from this world to the heavenlies, from this present death into a future hope where we will live and rule forever with Him instantaneously. And He delivers the bride because the day of the Lord is coming. Why is this so important? I I know I might be losing some of you. Well, let's look at several of these 19 references in the Minor Prophets about the day of the Lord and why we don't want to be around. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble 
for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. That does not sound fun. That does not sound like a good time. How about Amos chapter 5? No, not the cookies. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. We're coming back to this verse in a second. But let's look at one more in Obadiah verse 15. In Obadiah verse 15 it says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So the day of the Lord sounds like something we don't really want to be involved in. It's terrifying. So the question is this, who is God speaking to about the day of the Lord? I'll add a little more complexity. If you want to go to the New Testament, you know, we're going to be in the book of Matthew next on Sundays. So like three or four years from now, we're going to be in chapter 24. Now, chapter 24 confuses a lot of people because the Lord tells all these people all these terrible things that are going to happen to them in the last days. And so there are many Christians who don't understand the rapture, and they're not what we call, this is, I'm just going to use these fancy terms so you know that I study. They're not predispensation, millennial dispensationalists, premillennial dispensationalists. I can't even think today. I'm tired. Meaning they don't believe in a literal rapture before a literal seven-year tribulation. They place it in different places in different times, or they don't believe in it at all. They think that it's all just make-believe by crazy Christians who just read their Bible and believe what it says. Okay, I, I may have been a little bitter when I said that one. With that being said, they'll read chapter 24 and verses like these, and they'll misapply them. So uh, the answer, the question then is, who are they talking to? I'm going to save you this one, verses 19 and 20. We're going to look on that one. So we're going to put a bookmark in that one. What I do want to talk about right now is that in Amos chapter 5, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And why that's so important is because you'll hear Christians and they'll just be so flippant, like, Oh, I'm ready for the rapture. I'm ready to get out of here. Oh, I'm just ready to go. And they're so cute about it. But they don't know what they're talking about. Yes, we should desire to be in the presence of God. I'm not belittling that. But when we say, I'm ready to get out of here, I'm ready to just go, we'll say things like, oh, things are just getting so bad, I'm just waiting to go. You don't know what you're saying. I have non-believing family members. I have non-believing co-workers. I have non-believing neighbors. And the seven-year tribulation will be a time like this world has never seen. Three-quarters of the world are going to die violent, heinous deaths with lots of pain. And we say, oh, yeah, I'm just I'm ready to go. You don't understand what you're talking about. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, that's an apparent contradiction because we are desiring to be with the Lord, but we want to be with Him in His timing. I just have a hard time when I hear pastors talking about things like this because they're watching the Titanic sink and they're saying, well, good thing I'm in this lifeboat. Those, dumb, those dummies just couldn't jump on the boat with us. Man, they're so dumb. Except when we were enemies with Christ, He died for us. We don't deserve to be on those boats. But I like what my friend pointed out. There's plenty of lifeboats with grace, and we need to save as many as are called. We need to be out there 
and be careful with our words and the things that we're talking about. This is very heavy things. And I can apply it to Micah, who's going to literally see the northern nation taken captive. And we've spoken about how barbaric the Assyrians are. When he says that Jerusalem is going to be laid waste, it is going to be laid waste. Now, I don't want to leave us down at the bottom of this valley here. Therefore, we will look to the Lord. I want you guys to see what it talks about in that day. In that day, the decree shall go far and wide, and they shall come to you. Because it's also a local prophecy that Micah is talking about. Yes, that is the decree. You see, after that 70-year judgment and being in the Babylonian captivity, there's a decree that's going to go forth from the Persian king, and Ezra and Nehemiah and others with him are going to go back into the promised land just as God ordained, as he predicted, as he prophesied, and Israel will be rebuilt. Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The temple and the walls will be rebuilt because of the grace of God. And Jesus will walk in that rebuilt temple. And he will argue with the Pharisees, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. But we know he's not speaking about the building. He's speaking about all those that are redeemed in Christ through him because he would be in the grave for three days and rise up. When the Lord restores, he restores. Well, let's continue now in verses 14 through 18. It's only up from here, guys, only up from here. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who would dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel, and let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might, they shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust of the serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of, earth, of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy." So we want to point out a couple things. Shepherd your people with your staff, and then at the end of verse 14, as in the days of old. So he's going to restore, and he's going to bring everyone back. And the non-believer is to be terrified, and they're going to be humbled. It says that in verses 16 through 17. They're going to crawl on their bellies. They're going to have this great humility from this judgment. And yet we see for the believer, for the nation of Israel, that God is going to continue to shepherd them and teach them and bring them back as in the days of old. What are the days of old? Verse 15, as when the day of they came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. And so in his present distress, Micah could see all this destruction about to take place and he's trying to warn everyone, but he knows he can't stop it. But then he has this glorious hope as he looks to God and listens to him that Israel is going to be brought back into the land and the Lord's going to do these miracles again like He used to when He delivered them out of the hand of Egypt. Well, when did that take place? Well, after the miracles of Nehemiah and Ezra and the rebuilding, what could be a greater miracle than Jesus, the Messiah Himself, healing the blind, feeding the thousands, teaching truth, 
bringing salvation, then Jesus is literally going to shepherd his flock. And then he's going to send his message to all the world. I love this verse, these verses from 14 to 18 because it contrasts the power and the fear and the judgment of God and the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And as believers, we often will shift too far to the left or to the right when really we see it perfectly knit together here. I said earlier that the tribulation will be the darkest time in all of humanity. But what is the biggest criticism the atheist has for the believer today? Why does God allow this? Why does He allow this? You know, why does He allow uh, children to be murdered? Why does He allow bad people to get away with things? What's more terrifying is when He doesn't allow it anymore, when He pours down His judgment, when He stops those things, when He ends it and pours out His wrath on the planet. But He also poured that wrath upon Himself so that we could be saved Why? Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This mercy is not him just passing over and saying, oh, I forgive you, don't worry about it. He poured out that wrath on himself and he took that judgment for us. That's, how we, that's why I can uh, preach so fervently to stop acting like it's us versus them. We get the same judgment. We get the same punishment. We are just as bad, only our Lord has taken our punishment upon Himself. We cannot look down on anyone. Woe is me, Micah would say. Woe is me. But we cried out to the Lord, and He heard us. And we want to share that same message. Now, I left a little bonus there for you. I didn't forget. Who was God talking to in Matthew 24 and in the minor prophets about the day of the Lord? Let's read verses 19 through 20. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers. From days of old. Remember, we can't keep any of our promises, right? Israel kept none of their promises to God. But who keeps his promises? The Lord keeps his promises. And all the way back in Genesis, he made a promise to a man named Abram, who he called Abraham, that he was going to bless him and his people and his descendants. Matthew chapter 24 is written to the nation of Israel. The minor prophets and their prophecies about woe and don't look for and be careful of the day of the Lord is speaking to the nation of Israel, those who believe they're walking in the covenant with God but have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Messiah that they have been foretold of. But because God keeps His promises, He's going to supernaturally seal 144,000 of them and another remnant to be preserved through that judgment. And they will come out on the other side because the Lord is merciful. He keeps His promises. He doesn't look at Israel and say, I messed up with you guys. I'm going to try again with these Gentiles because they're better than you are. No, we're all equally terrible. But He will never leave us nor forsake us. And because of His compassion on us, He takes our iniquities. That's how He subdues them. 
and he casts our sins into the steps of the sea because he is going to keep his promise. Can you think of a better way to close out the prophecies of Micah than to remind us all that God keeps his promises to Israel, God keeps his promises to you, and God keeps his promises to humanity that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He hasn't pardoned us because he just lets it go. He is a righteous judge. He is a righteous king, and he will make all things well. And his wrath is going to be poured out on the planet, or it is poured out on his son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Because what does it say? He delights in mercy and has compassion on us. As we leave the book of Micah, I pray that it is no longer us versus them, that we see the decay in society and we say, woe is me, but we also say what Micah said in verse 7, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for teaching us and instructing us in so many different things. We pray that we would apply your word to us as you applied it to Micah's day and that we would grow in grace and have a greater understanding of who you are and that we would share it with the world, that you would save as many as you call. In Jesus' name we pray.